Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. We at Israel Policy Forum are pleased to present this episode as part of a series in partnership with Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli organization committed to identifying and tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each month, we'll discuss different issues shaping the policy conversation on Jerusalem, And with so much now at stake, this month's installment couldn't be more timely. A crisis in Jerusalem is expanding onto multiple fronts. Recent days have seen controversy surrounding pending evictions of Palestinian residents in East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, conflict on the Temple Mount between Palestinians and Israeli police, and far-right provocations surrounding Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. Now we are seeing what may be the beginnings of a wider military conflict, with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket barrages directed at Israel and retaliatory Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. To help us understand what's going on, I'm joined by Daniel Seidman, an attorney based in Jerusalem and the founder of the Terrestrial Jerusalem Organization. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, you're in Jerusalem. So what is the mood in the city like right now? What's remarkable is how much the same things feel. You know, much of southern Israel and close to central Israel are in shelters. There are rocket barrages. Um, With the exception of yesterday, which I'll talk about, we don't feel any of that. Jerusalem witnessed its most convulsive violence probably since the Second Intifada yesterday. And uh, most people in Jerusalem didn't feel it. Uh, People know not to go into the center of town on Jerusalem Day because of the march, uh, you know, the flag march. But that's not ideological. It's just, you know, traffic jams. Um, I was out and around today. I would say the mood is a bit subdued, a lot less traffic. Uh, People kind of walk around on tiptoes. But in comparison to what is going on in Ashdod and Ashkelon, there is no comparison. Now, the interesting thing is this round with Hamas started with Jerusalem, not only as the cause or the pretext, but the first rocket barrage was sent not to Jerusalem, but in our direction. Now, Jerusalemites, no, they're not going to target us because there are 350,000 Palestinians here, um, and there's Al-Aqsa. But we were part of it. Uh, They sent a message. This is about Jerusalem. And immediately our daughters called from Tel Aviv and said, "Uh, you didn't go into the shelter, did you? But in any event, um, a message was sent to Jerusalem. This is about Jerusalem, but life in Jerusalem's pretty much the same. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're safe. Uh, but as you said, this started with Jerusalem. And I want to take a few steps back and focus in on Sheikh Jarrah. Where is this neighborhood located? Who are the Palestinian residents there? How long have they been there? And what are the Jewish claims against them? Sheikh Jarrah is a Palestinian neighborhood that goes back several centuries and began to develop as kind of a a Palestinian rechavia in the mid-19th century. 
the stately houses of the Palestinian elite. It's uh, located you know, about three miles to the north of the old city on the way to Mount Scopus. And it is immediately to the east of the uh, current route number one, the north-south thoroughfare in the city. Um, so it really is a Palestinian neighborhood. On the western um, edge of Sheikh Jarrah, there are actually two areas with the Jewish history. The one with the longest Jewish history um, is a tomb. It's an ancient burial tomb, Kever Shimon Tzadik, which is associated with the burial place of the high priest from the Second Temple period. Uh, it's been the site of Jewish pilgrimage um, for almost a thousand years. Um, uh, and across the road is Nachlat Shimon or Shunate Georgim Um Harun, which was a small Jewish neighborhood you know, prior to 1948. In the 1870s, Two religious associations, one Ashkenazi, the other Sephardi, bought the land around the tomb. Um, the Ashkenazi built some buildings there, and there were some Jews living there. Uh, the Sephardim in the southern part left it empty. Across the road, there was a small neighborhood of Jews from Georgia uh, who lived there. It was a rather impoverished neighborhood, but it produced a number of very prominent Israelis, uh, the artist Mordechai Livanon and Rivka Libichaeli, the actress. Um, both of these neighborhoods were abandoned uh, upon instructions of the Haganah and the British mandatory officials in 1948. They fled. Um, there, there were you know, half a dozen houses in Shimon Sadiq. There were about 35 houses um, in Nachlat Shimon. Uh, and the, the, the people who fled were taken care of by Israel. I mean, um, uh, they were uh, given alternate housing, um, frequently uh, houses that had belonged to Palestinians who fled Israel. After the war in 1967, Israeli legislation allows Jews who owned property uh, in East Jerusalem prior to 1948 to recover that property. Uh, it does not allow Palestinians who lost property in West Jerusalem to do the same. I'm not going to go into all of the legal and historical intricacies, but this law is being used as a mechanism in order to recover, quote unquote, uh, this land, uh, to evict the Palestinians who are living there. And uh, these Palestinians have been living there for 60, 65 years, uh, most of them in homes that nobody else has ever lived in. Not one of the original owners has returned to either neighborhood. All of the houses from which Palestinians were evicted are being turned over to the biblically motivated settler organizations. And this is being done with the full assistance of the state of Israel. So basically what we have been witnessing in Sheikh Jarrah 
is the state of Israel, for the first time since 1967, engaging in large-scale displacement of a neighborhood. They're displacing uh, Palestinians um, who have lived in these houses for 65 years, and they are using all of the authorities of government to do that. And every house that is evacuated is turned over to the settlers. We've never done that before. We have never targeted an entire community. We have never targeted an entire neighborhood. We, we just haven't done that. Now, in the conflict between ourselves and the Palestinians, uh, most of the issues are territorial. Uh, how do you divide this tortured land between Israelis and Palestinians equitably? Um, and that's finite. You know, you take out the scalpel, you divide the land. But there are two issues that are not um, uh, terribly rational. Um, they are the radioactive issues of this conflict. Uh, they're radioactive because they touch to the core of uh, Israeli Jewish identity and Palestinian identity. Uh, one of those issues is Jerusalem, and the other is displacement or fear of being a refugee. In both peoples, Jerusalem's enormously important. I mean, this is uh, the, the epicenter of the conflict in terms of geographical, religious, historical importance. But bear in mind that both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people are refugee people in terms of their national consciousness. Every Jewish family is a refugee family. You can always trace it back, uh, even if you're tracing it back to 1492. But the Palestinian formative experience is Nakba. And when in Jerusalem, not far from the old city, at a time when the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, Al-Aqsa, is boiling over, we are engaging in large-scale displacement. We are taking these two radioactive issues, displacement and Jerusalem, and putting them in the same place. And that is an act of you know, um, uh, nuclear fusion. Uh, and it is not at all surprising that this has sent the convulsions and the tremors through Jerusalem and throughout the region, the region, the way it has. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before, which was this juxtaposition between the experience of the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah and the original uh, Jewish residents in the area who fled uh, in advance of the Jordanian occupation in 1948. How do these Jewish claims compare to Palestinian refugee claims in West Jerusalem and the rest of Israel proper? Because I mean, aren't the Sheikh Jarrah residents people who were displaced in 1948 and their descendants? There seems to be kind of an analog in those two uh, claims and if Israel is willing to entertain uh, one, although as you noted, it's not the original uh, Jewish residents or their descendants, but still the claim of restoring Jewish ownership of this area, doesn't this open up the issue of Palestinian ownership in parts of uh, Israel proper and uh, West Jerusalem? 
um, it, it clearly opens it up uh, for the entire world. It doesn't open it up legally. Um, Israel has indeed kicked the hornet's nest of the Nakba of 1948, <clears throat> and that hornet's nest cannot be unkicked. Uh, what do I mean by saying kicking the hornet's nest? You are implementing, you here in Sheikh Jarrah, you are fulfilling a right of return to biblical Israel? Fine. You got a home, we got a home. You're going home, we're going home. Morally, you have one city, one war, two peoples. <clears throat> there were 2,000 Jews who were displaced by the war in 1948. There were 20 to 30,000 Palestinians in Jerusalem who were displaced by the same war. The Jews can recover their property, but under the Israeli legal system, the Palestinians cannot. And that is something that is difficult to justify. But in all fairness, uh, there are two national collectives in Jerusalem, an Israeli one and a Palestinian one, and only the Israeli collective have national rights. The Palestinians do not have national rights. So this is not an anomaly. It is a reflection of uh, basically the uh, inherent um, unfairness, injustice, and unsustainability of Israeli rule over East Jerusalem, a rule that I call occupation. So in other words, this would not be as much of an issue if, for example, you had a two-state outcome where you had uh, Palestinians having national rights in Palestine, Jews having national rights in Israel, and Jews are not going to go back to every place where they were displaced from in what would become Palestine, and likewise, Palestinians, and I know it's not a one-to-one -one ratio by any means, uh, in Israel. You know, um, it, it's interesting. Um, I had the honor of taking uh, some very senior officials from the Trump administration uh, out and around in East Jerusalem. And um, standing opposite Sheikh Jarrah, uh, one of them, and you know the name, asked me, why can't you know, Jews live under Palestinian sovereignty uh, in a Palestinian entity. He was not willing to utter the word Palestinian and state together. And I said, by all means, if you're willing to open the door to Palestinians living under Israeli sovereignty, Palestinians from Palestine, there will be parity, there will be symmetry. And if Jews are going to implement a right of return to historic Eretz Israel, uh, the Palestinians are going to be implementing a right of return into Israel proper. I believe that defies the logic of the two-state solution of self-determination for both peoples, and that's why I consider this to be extremely contrary to the Israeli national interest, regardless of the humanitarian meltdown that it's causing in these areas. Important points, but 
back to the here and now of what is going on, how many residents are actually facing the possibility of eviction now in Sheikh Jarrah? Um, uh, we've counted proceedings, uh, eviction proceedings that have been instituted either directly by Israel or with the settler organizations acting in cooperation with the government of 93 families. Uh, you know, how many exactly are in each household? Fair to say about seven or eight. Do the math. We're talking about many hundreds of people. And it's a community. Now, you know, uh, most of these homes, including the ones um, that were supposed to come before the Supreme Court this week, are on the Sephardic part of Shimon Tzedek. In the 1950s, the Jordanians and the United Nations built 28 houses for refugees on that plot of land and uh, uh, gave a long-term lease to Palestinian refugees. Uh, and those are the families who are living in these 28 houses. No Jew has ever lived in that house. They have 65 years of living there, 65 years of memory, 65 years of neighbors, and we are evicting them en masse or trying to in order to turn them over as a an ideological plaything to biblically motivated settler organizations. Now, unfortunately, this is not the first time that Palestinian residents have been evicted from Sheikh Jarrah before, including several instances in the past 20 years. So I have to ask, why all of the attention on this case now? Let me be completely precise on this. Um, on one occasion, after the war in 1967, uh, Israel engaged in large-scale displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and it was hours after the ceasefire. We raised the Mugrabi Quarter, uh, which is um, just beneath the walls of the uh, ramparts of the Temple Mount, uh, and we expelled its residents June 10th, 1967, uh, with no legal justification for that. The next time you daven in the Western Wall Plaza, remember that that's how the plaza was built. That was the last time we engaged in any large-scale displacement. There have been individual families, not a huge number, um, 10, 20, uh, in Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, and elsewhere, individual families that have been targeted by a very similar process. And uh, for the most part, we were able to put a stop to that in the Rabin government when uh, the Rabin government shut that down for uh, a protracted period. But then we were targeting individual families uh, whose crime was the settlers coveted their home. Now we're not talking about individual cases. We're talking about communities and neighborhoods. And uh, communities and neighborhoods that when they become settlements, we will see an, a, a, a large degree of encirclement 
of the old city by biblically motivated settlements. Not completely contiguous, but you will have on the south, Silwan, Batan al-Hawa, Ras al-Amud, the Mount of Olives. And in the north, you will have Sheikh Jarrah, and then the government headquarters, and the Hyatt Hotel, and the Mount Scopus. And you will see the encirclement of the old city by these kinds of settlements. Not good. Speaking of the heightened attention to this case, Sheikh Jarrah was trending on Israeli social media, and Palestinian citizens of Israel took to the streets in several Arab towns inside of Israel. Uh, This level of widespread Israeli-Arab engagement with the Palestinian cause feels unprecedented maybe since 2000. The relations between the Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Jewish-Israeli citizens of Israel uh, is in flux. And uh, it's going in in countervailing directions. Uh, you see an integration uh, into Israeli society and Israeli politics as never before, uh, a sense of commonality, and you see uh, toxic levels of racism and mutual hatred um, at the same time. Um, it is clear that Sheikh Jarrah has hit a nerve. Um, and it's hit a nerve under circumstances that Netanyahu for 11 years has been trying to erase the green line and the distinction between the West Bank and Israel. Well, um, you know, if you sow the wind, we've got a storm. Uh, with the green line erased, um, Palestinian rights um, to return, Israeli rights to return, are now on the agenda. Um, what happens to families in Sheikh Jarrah is felt in Umm al and Rahat. I think that we are discovering uh, that because of circumstance, uh, Israelis are discovering that despite our period of protracted denial, the Palestinian issue has not gone away. And there's something deeply disturbing about having one city where one people are being evicted from their homes uh, and, the, uh, and, and not allowed to return to the homes that they lost. And that is resonating with some Israelis, regardless of their political affiliation. You had mentioned earlier that the Israeli Supreme Court would be making a decision on Sheikh Jarrah, but they postponed that decision, which would have, if carried out as originally scheduled, coincided with Yom Yerushalayim and all of the provocations and uncertainty that come with that day. How might the Sheikh Jarrah residents' cases be resolved, and what impact could the postponement have on the case, if any? I have had more than 25 appearances before the Israeli Supreme Court, and I am very respectful of the court. I think um, one of the worst decisions I've ever seen the court make was scheduling a hearing on Sheikh Jarrah for Jerusalem Day. 
and uh, I am glad that um, cool heads and steady hands prevailed and put it off. The court in the past has ruled in favor of the settlers. And in many ways, that's the law. Um, I don't think that they are um, displaying inherent racism by ruling the way they do. I think they're ruling their interpretation of the law. Now, what I'm saying is, uh, this is a charade. Uh, and you're asking the wrong legal questions. The wrong legal question, this is not a question about a landlord and a tenant. You know, go to Jared Kushner for that. This is not about um, technicalities in the different kinds of lands that exist under the Ottoman Empire. The one legal question is, is it legal for the state of Israel, the state, to use all of its organs, bodies, authorities, laws, regulations, to harness them, to take property from one sector, Palestinian, who have no political rights, and to give it to ideologically motivated settlers. I think that's illegal. Now, the chances of the Supreme Court ruling that way are about the same chances about the Supreme Court in the United States ruling on the legality of the Vietnam War in Guantanamo. It's a radioactive issue, and Supreme Courts shy away from issues like that for reasons I understand. One of the subtexts that I often received from the justices on the Supreme Court was, Mr. Seidman, you'll get a lot of respect, tea, and sympathy from us. You will not get judicial relief. It's not because you're wrong. It's because this is too sensitive an issue for the courts to rule on. Take this to where it belongs, to the political arena. Take it to the attorney general, take it to the prime minister and absolve us of dealing with this, which is a logic that I can understand. I would hope that with the help of friends, both domestically and internationally, the next Israeli government uh, will get some seichel and will take a hard look at what the Israeli government policies have been these past years. When we did that in the summer of 1992 under Yitzhak Rabin, uh, we got one of the most damning, revealing reports, the Klugman Committee report, which showed that Israeli government was systematically taking individual properties away from Palestinians and turning them over to settlers. And the Rabin government put a stop to it. That was done vis-a-vis -vis individuals. We now have to do it when the threat is greater. It's, it's, it's not only greater in terms of the humanitarian meltdown, Israel does not want to be among the countries in this world that forcefully displace vulnerable populations. We don't want to go there. Shifting gears, what is going on on the Temple Mount and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque? In our last episode, we had discussed the tension surrounding the Damascus Gate and the fighting between the police and Palestinians around there. Are these issues related? And if so, how? I believe that the issues of Damascus Gate and Haram al-Sharif are um, connected through underground streams. Let's put it that way. Uh, 
I have been warning for quite some time now of a potential conflagration uh, in and around the Temple Mount uh, Haram al-Sharif because we have been witnessing the erosion of the status quo on the Temple Mount. Uh, and, this, and the status quo is open to a large number of interpretations, but there is something that's not open to interpretation. Netanyahu defined a narrow but universally accepted definition of what the status quo is, and that is Muslims pray on the Temple Mount, non-Muslims visit. It is exclusively a Muslim place of worship that is opened to the dignified, respectful visits of non-Muslims in accordance with the decorum in the site. That's no longer the case because uh, Israel and especially the police have become increasingly permissive uh, uh, to all intents and purposes. Uh, there are frequent Jewish prayers on the Mount and the Palestinians sense uh, that one of their safe spaces, uh, uh, one of the places where they weren't under Israel's thumb, is um, is being lost to them. That a Muslim site is being transformed into a shared Jewish-Muslim site, and the Jews with whom they are sharing it want them gone. Um, and they are not paranoid for fearing that. Uh, and this is one of the two most sensitive uh, issues in the conflict. The other is displacement. Now, what does this have to do with uh, Damascus Gate? For years, after prayer, before prayer, the young men, some women, um, would get together after leaving Haram al-Sharif al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount, and hang out. It's, uh, it's their Zion Square. Uh, it's their safe place. And the police came in and arbitrarily took away, it away from them. And when they said, you know, you can't do this, you know, you haven't done this before, the police lied and said, we've been doing it for years. And then we came up with the pictures, good journalists like Nir Hassan, they never did it before. And it creates, it, it adds to a sense under Israeli rule, Israeli lives matter, Palestinian lives matter less, and sometimes they don't matter at all. Uh, we are on our own. The Arab world has abandoned us. This is 10 days ago. Uh, normalizing with Israel and going to the Temple Mount with Israeli police instead of Waqf guards. Uh, Abu Mazen uses us as a pretext in elections. Israel treats us as the enemy. Uh, young Palestinians in Jerusalem cannot envisage a trajectory in their own lives in which they'll be free. And they have so few um, places left the Temple Mount was one of them, and Damascus Gate with the other, and um, there is both a sense that they're losing them. Now, this isn't the cause of the violence. It's the detonator. 
Um, this is sitting on the tectonic plates of an unsustainable reality. Uh, you cannot have a city uh, which is 40% Palestinian, 60% uh, Israeli, and Israel has all of the power and the Palestinians have none of the power. A house divided against itself cannot stand half occupied, half free. And periodically, there are going to be detonators like this. And the prime candidate for detonators uh, are the holy sites and things related to them and the displacement of Palestinian communities. And we happen to have both of them simultaneously. It was a perfect storm. While we're on the subject of things that could set off a broader chain reaction, uh, we spoke briefly earlier about Yom Yerushalayim. Um, the Israeli government decided rather late in the game to reroute the Flags March, which is the event related to Yom Yerushalayim, in which thousands of religious Zionists parade through the Muslim quarter in the Old City. It's clearly designed as a deliberate provocation. The march organizers canceled the event at the last minute, but thousands of people were already there and they still carried out the parade unofficially. So in the end, did the Israeli government's actions have any impact? And how did the, uh, let's say, unofficial march play out? The, the unofficial march was overshadowed by a rocket barrage in the Judean hills. Um, but it did not prevent um, a rather grotesque, uh, ecstatic celebration of the extreme right uh, at um, the Kotel, the Western Wall. I suggest people go online and see some of the footage from that. It's rather surreal. Uh, but you can say we dodged a bullet. But the government was so feckless. Why did you wait for an hour before the march set off? Why did you let tension build? It did make a difference. Because there's a very real possibility that had the march reached Damascus Gate and gone through the Muslim quarter, there's a very good chance there would have been bloodshed. So... Yes, that is a bullet, I think, that we dodged. We shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. Finally, we come to the rocket fire by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is, uh, of course, inexcusable, and Israeli counterstrikes in Gaza uh, that have taken place since then. Now, of course, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are going to say that this is about Jerusalem, but we've been talking about Jerusalem this whole time, and it's clear that things didn't just happen all at once. There's been a lot that these groups could have chosen as a pretext to fire rockets. So why did they decide to do this now? And can the parties walk back from a military escalation, or are we already there? And gratefully, I only deal with the easy issues like Jerusalem and nothing as complicated as Hamas. Um, having said that, Jerusalem is the ultimate pretext. It's also the ultimate reason. Um, a pretext 
uh, for reasons known only to them, um, uh, uh, appearing as the defender of Jerusalem, marginalizing Abu Mazen, um, uh, taking up the mantle of leadership on the subject of Jerusalem is something that serves them politically. Uh, but again, I am, I am am no expert. On the other hand, you know, I'm a bit of a Twitter fiend. I can't tell you how many young men and women from Gaza follow me uh, because I describe to them what Jerusalem is like because they've never seen it. So the attachment of people in Gaza to Jerusalem is very genuine. I am not accusing Hamas of being genuine. Uh, I'm saying that the attachment of the Arab world, the equities of the Arab world in Jerusalem are used as pretexts, but they are far from being entirely contrived. I tend to think that this conflict will wind down, not based on what happens in Jerusalem, but based on what happens in Gaza. If um, we will see a ceasefire, and I have no idea if that is coming or not, I think there's a reasonable possibility that we will see tensions in Jerusalem to drop. You know, the Palestinians uh, in East Jerusalem are not radical revolutionaries. You know, they they know that they they have to live. They're the only Palestinian population living under direct Israeli occupation. They've got to adapt to that. They have to resist it on occasion, um, and nobody helps them. The Gulf doesn't help them. The PA doesn't help them. Israel doesn't help them. They're on their own. Um, but there are times when there are enough events that occur that that they they be they begin resistance and we've seen that resistance at Damascus Gate in Sheikh Jarrah and on the Temple Mount but they are i would say a very reluctant vanguard give them an opportunity for this to wind down it will wind down but that decision will be made by Netanyahu and Hamas and not by the young people in Jerusalem. Well, we can only hope that you are right in that analysis, as right now things look pretty serious. Daniel, I want to thank you for joining us again and for sharing your expertise. Thank you, and to Israel Policy Forum. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you want to learn more about what's going on, of course, this is a rapidly changing situation, but Israel Policy Forum has put out a number of resources on this issue. I've drafted an explainer, which is on Israel Policy Forum's website, as well as an article in the forward yesterday. And Israel Policy Forum will be hosting a video briefing later today, the day that this podcast is going up, uh, on the situation in Jerusalem and Gaza, as well as, and don't forget this, there is still the protracted Israeli political crisis going on. Uh, if you're not able to make it to that program, a recording of it will also be posted on Israel Policy Forum's website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. Once again, thanks to everyone for tuning in. 
We are, of course, thinking of everyone in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Gaza. And to all of our listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time. 